and welcome to another edition of Cover to Cover, Open Book, or Frame to Frame, as I like to say. The next half hour, uh, we'll be talking about film. My name is Raina Cowan. Thank you so much for joining me. And today I'm going to talk about two films, uh, Life Overtakes Me, which is a very interesting film about resignation syndrome, which I'll get into in a minute. And then in the second part of our show, we'll talk about The Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin, a film that's showing tomorrow night at the Rafael Film Center in San Rafael. Uh, so we're lucky enough to have all the directors uh, with us today. So we're going to start with Life Overtakes Me. It's directed by John Haptis and Chris Samuelson. Uh, they all they produced, directed, and edited it. And in addition, camera was done by John and sound by Chris. So we're talking to a team. Uh, and they have been with me before talking about Riding the Tiger. Their recent film, Tokyo Waka, prevered theoretically, theoretically, <laughs> theatrically at Film Forum in New York. And uh, it was a wonderful film. And also, uh, Chris taught in the documentary film and video program at Stanford University for 30 years and was the program director for 10 years. And she was nominated for an Academy Award for Arthur and Lily. And John Haptis is a freelance editor, but also an incredible camera person. And uh, we're going to talk about the film Life Overtakes Me. So over the past 15 years, hundreds of refugee children in Sweden have become afflicted with what's called resignation syndrome. And they withdraw from the world into a coma-like state for months or even years. And the families of these children have been subjected to severe trauma in their home countries, followed by the anxiety of a lengthy asylum process and an uncertain future. So Life Overtakes Me follows three families for over a year, and we can see what it's like for both the, these parents to take care of these children, but also to get a sense of the impact of this kind of trauma on children. So uh, Chris and John, thank you for joining me. What inspired you to make this film? You know, we came across this syndrome in an article that we read, and we were just stunned that we live in a world where children can be so despairing that they give up on life and literally withdraw. And they withdraw into a coma-like state, a catatonic state, where they don't eat, they don't drink, they have no communication with the world, and it's as if they're under a spell. This can go on for such a long time. The longest that we know of, um, based on our time in Sweden, is uh, a young child who's been under for four years. So... We were intrigued by this and made some efforts to contact the doctor that was profiled in the article, found her name on the internet uh, via, you know, the university she used to teach at and wrote her. And she did write us back, but she had been inundated with media requests from everyone, Vice, BBC, National Geographic, Al Jazeera. And some were to make news programs, but there were others that wanted to do longer pieces. As independent documentarians, we were definitely on the side of doing something that covered several months and showed change in the families. So she said, well, you could come over here and meet me and we'll see whether or not it's going to be a good arrangement. So at that time, um, we decided I would go there. I went there. I stayed with her and her family for several days and we visited several refugee families who had children who were in resignation syndrome. And then I came back, John and I talked, and we decided we would love to go forward with the project if we were able to 
get permission and access. And it took some months, but we did then eventually get permission to come. And through the doctor and another doctor, we were introduced gradually to four families, of which three are in the film. We filmed four, but three are in the film. We were attracted to this um, subject because, um, like many documentarians, we're always looking for um, a microcosm, a small story that can tell a larger story. And we thought that it was um, really interesting that um, this was such a visual, graphic um, manifestation of the trauma that refugee families go through. And our hope was that if we could make this work, uh, we could tell that small story, this very unique, particular story taking place in Sweden, and um, and, and cause the viewer to think about uh, how this resonates at a more general level among other refugee families in other places. Well, it's it's interesting because in your film, you have these refugees and they're speaking other languages. You don't identify where they're from. Uh, we hear a little bit of each of their traumas. And there's this sense, <laughs> I guess, watching your film, like, this film could be a lot longer. There is so much about what happened to them, how they wound up in Sweden, uh, all those kinds of elements. But what you focus on are the moments, actually, when we see the kids who are just sort of lying in bed, um, alive, breathing. They have color in their face, and yet uh, nothing moves. It's as if they're uh, completely in another place. Well, they are a suspended and I think that we, we didn't particularly set out to do either a short film or a feature-length documentary. But as we were making the film, we felt that we did not want to focus just on the trauma. And we didn't want to go on and on into every daily activity that the parents embarked on to take care of these kids who are basically suspended from life. So over time, we, you know, we, we were there. We went to Sweden five times over about a year. And we spent a total of about three months in Sweden. So much of that time was just being with the families, not even shooting, um, or only filming for 30 minutes or an hour. They're exhausted. They have to take care of these children, and that does involve some nighttime feeding. So they're, they're just completely exhausted. They have other children who have needs, and they're completely concerned about their futures because they're so anxious about whether they're going to be sent back to their home countries for which they're very fearful. And we also made a deliberate effort not to identify where the, where the families are from because we promised them we would not do that. We would not say where they were from, we would not use their names, and we would not indicate where they live in Sweden just for their own protection and their own anonymity, which they really wanted. Uh, you know, feeling to, it would help them feel a little bit more safe. So the only three names in the film are the names of the three children that we follow. Wow. And what made you, like, what did it feel like when you actually were with these kids for the first time? Well, I would say that um, it's, it's hard to convey, although we tried to convey, it's very hard to convey what it's like to be in these stress-filled, claustrophobic apartments with these families under all this stress. And it's very clear, uh, and we tried to... Um, make it clear that it's about families. It's, it, it's yes, the, the children's are a focus, but there are siblings there who are living in, in, in these settings, and the parents are heroes here, and they're spending all their time trying to 
keep their child alive uh, with the methods they've been taught by medical personnel. Um, I, I would say that um, it was just um, it was it, it, it was it was difficult. It was difficult for them um, because we're two tall people coming into the apartment. So we tried um, to really have a small footprint. We had a small camera set up. The only light we had was a Chinese lantern we got from Ikea. Um, we pretty much stayed with wide lenses, fast lenses, and stayed on a tripod so that we could just hold back, be against the wall, be out of the way, and then just let things unfold. Um, and the other thing that we could do, something that we had that was an advantage that I think enabled us to make the film and would make it difficult for other people to make a film like this, is that we had a lot of time. It was just the two of us or sometimes the two of us with a volunteer doctor. Um, and so we could just spend time. We could go one day. We could not go the next three. We would sometimes go have coffee, you know, spend time with them and never film. So that was one thing I think that really helped us because um, we could take a lot of time to just develop a relationship with the families. Did you feel like that you got an understanding of the personalities of the three children who had basically developed this resignation syndrome? That's a very interesting question. I think I would say yes. Um, we became very close to these families, spent a lot of time with them, and a lot of it was nonverbal time. Uh, but oh, we just became very knitted together. And in their isolation, I mean, we were probably some of the only people they saw, us and the volunteer doctors. And they would love to tell us <clears throat> about, the <clears throat> about their children. And they showed us pictures of the children when they were well, and they spent a lot of time describing what the children loved to do. And in fact, in the film, we have a moment where the mother's looking at pictures of the daughter on her cell phone and showing us, you know, she liked to run. Here's her Halloween costume. Here's, here's when she's dressed up as Elsa from Frozen. So that they're really animating the life that's missing in their descriptions of the child. So we did feel that we got a strong sense of the missing personality that Instead, it was just this body lying in a bed. And where we could, we tried to include that. So we did include, of course, some images, some fo still photographs. But we also have uh, family video footage from an iPhone shooting one of the children in a swim race, for example. So as much as possible, we very much tried to capture a little bit of the essence of the child while we were there. And, and like we said before, it's really a film um, in each of these three cases about a family and not just about um, the, the young child who's suffering from this condition. Um, and I think that it's important, you know, to say that, that um, the families, and this is primarily the parents, made a lot of efforts to always include the young child who is, who is out, who is under the spell, if you can call it that, in all the activities that were going on in the household. Um, often if they went for a walk, the whole family would go for a walk. If the family had a meal... Um, they would roll um, the child up to the table um, and, you know, do the tube feeding while the rest of the family was, you know, eating their meal. Uh, the, the siblings spent time with them, reading books to them. Um, there were constant, um, there was music playing all the time. There were videos playing. Uh, there was an effort to, to make this as much as they could under these really difficult circumstances to make it family life. 
we're speaking with John Haptis and Chris Samuelson about their film, Life Overtakes Me, about uh, these children infected by resignation syndrome and the parents who are taking care of them. You know, it's interesting because all these families have already been through so much. They were they had this history of trauma of which they had to not come to this country, Sweden, and then had to probably communicate many times to officials in such a way so that the officials would believe that they had actually been through the trauma. They had to learn a new language, engage in a new culture, figure out how to fit in, and then now they have to deal with these children who have taken on almost all the pain and suffering, the, the emotional suffering of these parents and um, the kids become disconnected. Oh, that's right. Um, and it's particularly interesting that the families are not coming from war-torn countries. They're not coming from conflict zones. They're coming from countries that are very poorly run. Either they're a kleptocracy or there's a lot of organized crime or there's ethnic violence. And some of these families are Roma, Uyghur, or Yazidi. That's not rare. And so... Their their trauma is a little bit harder to both um, verify, but but to put into the bucket of automatically you're going to get residency. You know, if, if if a family comes from Aleppo to Sweden, they will get residency and they will get it very quickly. But if you're coming from the Balkans and there's not a war there right now, but you've been horribly persecuted either religiously or personally or all kinds of ways, politically, it's a little harder to make the case. So that's one of the reasons that their asylum process is, is elongated and the anxiety continues for so long. So you're right. I mean, people people often say the child becomes the symptom bearer of all the stress and anxiety in the family. Though we have to tell you, having spent so much time with people, I mean, that anxiety permeates every room of those apartments. There's just, I, I've never been in a place where there's just so much stress it's not really quantifiable, but it's it's just present. Mm, so, so it wouldn't be difficult for anybody to pick that up. Like anybody in the family can feel that. Yeah, I would say so. Was it helpful talking to the experts, you know, the doctors and the psychologists and trying to figure out how to make sense of that? I mean, there's little elements of that in the film. A lot of that is is sort of left out. But there's, I wonder if there was something about the experience that kind of organized the two of you as filmmakers while you were making the film? Well, we we did spend, as I think any documentarian would, a lot of time, um, first of all, just doing research, reading things. We read things that were, you know, these abstruse medical um, articles that were very difficult for us to decipher. Uh, but we also spent quite a bit of time talking to um, anybody in Sweden who um, was at all an expert in this condition. Um, and one thing we found out was there are all kinds of ideas about what's going on. Um, we could give you a list of uh, there were Freudians and there were this and there was that. Uh, it became very clear to us um, that we, we 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 couldn't go down that road. We couldn't go down the road of taking um, all these theories about what's the cause of what's going on, what's the best way to uh, for the children to recover. And start getting into them because pretty soon we'd be having dueling experts. We did not want to have uh, rival talking heads in white coats behind desks debating these things. We thought that would drain the emotion out of the film immediately. So the tack we took was that 
um, since our goal from the beginning was to tell an emotional story because we think that's an effective film, that's what's going to make a viewer think about the, you know, the refugee crisis and the trauma that afflicts refugee families, we decided we were just going to concentrate on the families. So we went to interview the experts and we decided we're not going to show them on screen. The only people with the privilege of talking to the audience uh, on camera are going to be the parents. So we decided to <clears throat> make sure that was a decision we wouldn't change our mind about. So we went to interview uh, quite a number of experts, and we didn't take the camera. We just did audio-only interviews. And then what we decided to do was to acknowledge that the viewer is going to wonder about a lot of these things. So we would try and give them a sense that, yes, we understand this is a, a, a reasonable question, and give them some sort of a response, even if we couldn't go into all the details. That makes a lot of sense. You know, we have just a couple of minutes, but I wanted to ask, John, this question that sometimes it seemed when you were shooting that you were sort of coming at uh, the families from this, from a sort of a flatter angle. And other times it looked like you were coming from a angle from above and down. Um, and I wondered if there was some way where, uh, the, the, I don't know, I guess as a viewer, it was a relief to feel the movement. Like, <laughs> there had to be movement somehow yes. uh, while I was watching things. And I thought, oh, you you guys had to figure out how to create movement. Uh, I mean, you show all these also beautiful scenery of Sweden, which is another way you create movement, but how to make it so that it isn't kind of collapsed in and of itself, so that it's watchable and interesting. Well, before we um, started shooting, we spent time looking at films. Uh, we talked a lot about how to go about this because we were looking at what some might regard as an uncinematic subject um, area because you're talking about children who don't move. You're talking about parents who do repeated things uh, and doing the same things other families do. So some of the rules we came up with were that we were going to pro try to stay away from a lot of standard cinema devices so that we could sort of keep them out of the space between the viewer and what's happening in the room. So our rules were to stay on a tripod, uh, use wide angles, and the movement you would see is we would very slowly sometimes pan or tilt to follow the action, but there's very few edits in this film. We just decided to, and there's no music, we decided to let the viewer get as close to the families as they could. Great. Life Overtakes Me. And the best news is that you can view it on Netflix. It starts airing on June 14th. You just found out that. So I want to thank both of you, John Haptis and Chris Samuelson, for uh, joining us, talking about something that's so interesting and something that I had read about, making it into a visual um, story that I could follow. So thanks so much. Thank, thank you, Raina. Uh, now I want to switch to talk about the worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, this is a new feature documentary, and it's exploring the remarkable life and legacy of the late feminist author Ursula K. Le Guin. She was best known for groundbreaking science fiction and fantasy works such as A, Wiz a Wizard of Earthsea, The Left Hand of Darkness, The Dispossessed, and... Uh, she is one smart woman. Uh, you, you just hear her voice and you just think, wow, she knows a lot. Um, the film is produced and directed by Arwen Curry. Uh, she had been an, she is an associate producer of TV at KQED Science. She went to UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. And this is her first full length feature film. And it is really well done. Uh, Arwen, I want to thank you for joining us here on KPFA. 
Thank you, Raina. It's great to be here. Great. So uh, I know that taking on such a complex topic, Ursula K. Le Guin herself, uh, as a filmmaker uh, for your first film is really a big project as a first feature length film. So what was it that made you feel like that you could approach her and get her buy-in for this film? And how did that process work? Well, so my career as a documentarian kind of grew up with this film. And as you mentioned, when I started the film, which was over a decade ago now, um, I I didn't have too much experience uh, making documentary films. I was just entering into graduate program at uh, the journalism program at UC Berkeley. And um, the idea came to me and started germinating and growing and you know, I began to kind of see how fruitful it would be and how, you know, potentially exciting. But I didn't have the experience at that point in documentary to back it up. So, uh, you know, I before I approached her, I did enter into the documentary film program at, at Berkeley and start pursuing my degree and learning about that craft, which was new to me. Um, but then, you know, at a certain point I did uh, approach her and describe what I wanted to do. And I think, you know, it was, it, it was a little bit nerve wracking, of course, to, to speak to this author this, that I had revered my whole life. But it was also, um, you know, the, 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 the project was beginning to take shape. So I was telling her something that was beginning to, to look like something real in, in my mind. And I, and I kind of wanted to share it with her. And, you know, she was at that moment for, for I think, a number of reasons, receptive. Well, it's, it's really interesting because I think that there are very few films that kind of weave together enough about somebody's life that make you feel like you understand them, but not sort of overwhelm. And uh, I... I, th- I would think that you would have so much material that you could have included so that you actually had to figure out how to parse it out so that it that it worked and flowed. So uh, what was that process like for you? Uh, well, this is a challenge to, to make a film about uh, an individual's life. I mean, every documentary film is a, is a challenge in its own way. Um, but obviously, a human life of any kind is incredibly complex, a, a full and long human life. And this was a human life that was, you know, an, of a cr- incredibly prolific uh, and, and you know, sort of um, wildly well-read, wildly uh, participatory author and and thinker. So it was it was a it was a complicated task. Um, but I think you don't you don't approach um, a film just like any work of you know long form journalism or art as a, a way to kind of encapsulate all the information. You're not trying to sort of cram everything in there unless you're making a, you know, a bibliography or something. You're trying to instead craft a story and the story takes its own shape. The project takes its own shape and everything isn't going to be in there. So, I mean, people do ask me, well, what do you, how do you think, do you think you got everything in there? Did you manage to say everything important about her life? And there's no way that I managed to do that. You know, instead I told a story that has an arc um, that is true. I hope, you know, it was true to the best of my ability to tell it. And the relevant pieces of information that, that are tied into that are there. And I hope that that, you know, communicates some essence of her life. But it certainly isn't all that is important or interesting about her life. 
Yes, because there's a comedy that's very interesting. She's both an intellectual and she could, I bet she could have a, an amazing conversation about everything with really strong opinions. And yet she was able to create all these millions of fantasy worlds uh, that she first created in a visual way and then wound up turning into these stories and like so many books, like uh, over 30 books, I think. Just an incredible yeah. amount. So was there something that sparked you in a new way when you started meeting her that was different from the Ursula K. Le Guin that you wound up uh, learning about through the books that you read? Something about her personality or some way that she engaged with the world? Yeah, well, I would say that she is consistent with the way that she seems um, in her writing, particularly in her nonfiction writing, where she's sort of addressing the reader directly. Um, she is, you know, as wise, as funny, as, you know, frank and as imaginative as you expect her to be and compassionate, all of these things. Um, and that's of course very reassuring and very rare. Um, but I think I wasn't, you know, I, there was still something about being in the, in the room with her and kind of seeing how it unfolded in a, in a human, um, kind of quotidian way that was really important to me, was really, um, you know, not what I had uh, anticipated. And, I, and I, I think it was a combination of kind of what you say, her, her sort of ability to think expansively and create these completely fantastical worlds and her uh, ability to be very rooted in the moment, you know, whether it's being with you in the room or with her fans or, or with the political moment or the cultural moment. So she was really able to kind of be very much in the real world, um, very rooted to the ground and very, you know, far flung in her imagination. It is interesting because when I've interviewed famous people, sometimes I feel like I never get to know them, that they've already become kind of a caricature of themselves or a protective shell. But it felt like that... Um, that wasn't the experience of at least the Ursula K. Le Guin that I saw in your film. She seemed real. No, I, I, yes, and I, and I watched her do this. It's one of the lessons that I learned from her. Um, and, I, of course, I won't probably have a, occasion to, to need this as much as she did. But I watched her over and over in archival footage and in footage that I shot of her and in my own questioning um, answer the same questions about her life and her work. And, you know, that's hard to answer the same questions over and over again. Um, and to try to do it in a fresh way, but she really did. She really did try. And I think she really did respond to every book that she was asked to review, you know, every uh, question that she was asked in an interview kind of with fresh ears. She tried to, uh, be there in the moment and to, you know, answer it as it was being asked in the spirit that it was being asked. You know, I think she was in a kind of constant process of trying to, uh, be present in her life as a as an artist and as a human being, um, and so I think you can see you can see a bit of that in the film. It was very present in her. It was very clear in her life and with her friends. It's, it's something that I think people miss a great deal uh, because there's it's, it's a very kind of rare quality of someone paying close attention almost all the time that you're talking with them that you you know. You can aspire to, but it's it's very hard to achieve. And I think she she did a better job of that than than certainly anyone I've ever met. 
The Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, it's going to show tomorrow at the Rafael Film Center in San Rafael. And um, uh, I've noticed it's very interesting because she has such a diverse fan base. Like you're showing it at a lot of universities. You're showing it at a lot of film festivals. It's like you have such a wild audience for, for this film because she was able to reach so many different kinds of people. Yeah, well, I'm sort of lucky, right? Because the the people I don't I don't have to sort of tell people to convince people to be interested in a story that I know is important, but that they don't know is important. They already love her, so all I have to do is get to put it in front of them. But I am gratified when I hear people in in audiences saying, "I've never heard of her," or "I heard of her, but I never read her, and I want to go read her now." Great, so that's great. And I did want to mention it will also be at the Bay Area Book Festival oh. on May fourth. May 4th, Berkeley at the Bay Area Book Festival. The Worlds of Ursula K. Le Guin. Uh, we spoke with Arwen Curry, who is the director of the film, shows tomorrow night at the Rafael Film Center. And we talked about Life Overtakes Me, John Haptis and Chris Samuelson. It starts playing on Netflix starting June 14th. My name is Raina Cowan. This has been Frame to Frame. Thanks for listening, and I will be back soon. Well Rider is a 2002 New Zealand family drama directed by Nikki Caro. Traditionally, the leader in this Maori tribe should be the firstborn grandson, a direct patrilineal descendant of their ancestor Paikia, the Well Rider who rode on top of a whale from Hawaii. But to break with convention, a female child in the bloodline will have to do the impossible and prove her worthiness. But we can learn, and if the knowledge is given to everyone, then we can have lots of leaders. And soon everyone will be strong, not just the ones that have been chosen. So join us for our next monthly movie matinee as we screen Well Rider, with a post-movie discussion led by members of KPFA's Apex Express. That's Saturday, April 27th, 3 p.m. at the New Parkway Theatre in Oakland. For more information, visit kpfa.org. You are listening to 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFC up in Fresno, and 97.5 K248 